0: You know, and that just and that just made sense to me on in like the most simplest in the most simplest form, too. I mean, the other part of that was, you know the idea of getting a job and working for someone else forever and retiring when I was too old to enjoy life didn't seem attractive. It seemed what most people did and i I didn't want to do that. Uh, you know, I would meet many adults that worked their whole lives or who had been working their whole lives, and it wasn't even that they were always unhappy. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't want to get up every morning and work for someone else, making them wealthy, especially not my entire life.
1: You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview Dive deeper and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20 year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation, and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Today on Passive Wealth Principles, I have a rock star, Gabriel Hamill. He is One of the most interesting people that I've ever spent time with, he has a very creative way of he's just looking at the world. And and the reality is, is that it's super simple, like using basic math and intuition. He has taken that and grown that into a real estate portfolio of more than 40 million dollars with no syndication oftentimes you hear that and people have 40 million dollars worth of real estate and they're raising funds from other people and he has done this primarily through seller financing through creative ways of structuring these deals that's focused on cash flow first and foremost and then over the course of uh 10 years was able to then start harvesting that equity and, and put together a unbelievable life. We're also going to dive into how he's done that with no employees, with one single purpose or one single purpose of not having a bunch of employees. So he's unlocked a true passive wealth principles in his life and architected that. One of the most healthy people I know, an amazing wife and kids, he travels and adventures We even dive into him recently going to Necker Island and spending some time with Richard Branson and some of those key takeaways. So I am incredibly excited about this episode that we're going to jump in with my friend, Gabriel Hamill. Gabriel Hamill, I I love the name Gabriel, probably because it is uh, my first best friend in the entire world his name is gabriel it's my my little brother uh one of uh, a couple uh i could not pronounce his name i'm two years older than him i called him babo uh that's how at least it pronounced as as gabriel was babo uh so uh, i always have an affinity towards people i think you know a handful of uh gabriel's have always been like people i uh you know maybe it's the name maybe it just because i personified that as as the my first best friend my my brother uh but anyway gabriel hamill um i am excited about this podcast episode because you know you and i have spent some time we've run around mountains you know we've been in sedona we've um i don't know all the places we've been but we've we've been around we camping our families camp together uh i feel like you are like A super rock star on these, you know, even what this podcast is about, you know, passive wealth principles, like you have architected one of the most fantastic lives that is envious to many people. That's like their end goal of what they would like to be. And you did it from the the starting point. Um, So we can dive into your your, uh, history and how you kind of got started. But I'd like to just say like what it is for the audience. What is your day to day look like today? And then we'll dive into a little bit of uh, how you got there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad I can be one of your many Gabriel friends. Uh, And yeah, we've got to spend a lot of time in different places together. So I I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm just a guy that likes to likes to buy real estate and live life to the fullest and travel. um, And you know, what's allowed me to do that is really to been uh, to have the passive income has really been real estate. And so, pretty early on, a uh, couple years after high school, I read the book Rich Dad Poor Dad and thought this makes sense. I'm going to buy assets and not go get a job, but uh, just focus on building wealth. And I knew that in my mind, real estate was going to be that path. I had no idea or initially what that was going to look like. Um, I would tell a lot of my friends that, "Hey, I'm going to go build this real estate empire." And most of them told me I was an idiot. And that's, that's kind of how I got my start. I just went, I just went all in, uh, learning what I could about investing in real estate. And I'm much more of a doer than just a, a thinker. And so taking action was a big, was a big part of that.
1: So today you have, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of real estate. So what, what is your investment portfolio look like today?
0: Today, yeah, it's a it's about a roughly forty million dollar real estate portfolio. It's it's non syndicated. Uh, I don't have partners on on most of the stuff. Um, I have a couple of partnerships on some of my smaller, uh, medium sized multifamily properties, but yeah, it consists of some single family, multifamily, some mixed use commercial, and as of late, mostly mobile home parks and uh, even a campground RV park, which is a newer newer purchase, and then shifting into some commercial. But yeah, it's. it's It's valued around forty million. It's about four hundred, just under four hundred units between uh, the asset, the asset types.
1: Yeah, that is, um, you know, one way to get a lot of passive wealth. As far as uh, you know, owning multiple units, and obviously, what you have, uh, I think, is probably in demand, recession proof. Uh, There's lots of inflation talks of, of recession right now. Do you have any concerns? about the recession coming in, in your portfolio?
0: You know, I, I don't, um, you know, I, I try to find the positive. I mean, yes, do I think that there's gonna be, do I think we're in a recession? Yes, do I think that there's gonna be some big changes? Absolutely, I mean, we're already seeing it uh, in the stock market, the crypto market. I, I choose to put most of my money, uh, you know, in, in real estate. And so for me, it's it's cash flow first. I built a lot of wealth through appreciation, but I never I've never relied on appreciation. For me, it's always been cash flow first. I didn't know a lot when I got started and my only criteria back when I started was, hey, I need, the property needs to be cash flow positive. So I bought a lot through uh, you know 2009 through 13. A lot of people told me back then I was crazy. Uh, but I was like, hey, the, the market the market had just crashed and this seems like a good time to buy. People are getting out. and as long as the p- property's cash flow positive, I thought that was a you know would hedge my risk. Uh, and, and everything I bought, 2019-13 was all no money down seller financing deals. And so, uh, even though those properties have appreciated, and uh, a lot of property that buy they have upside potential. Almost everything I buy uh, is under rented, poorly managed, and have it upside. I just I just don't rely on that. And you know, shifting into the mobile home park space, I do think that that space is fairly recession proof. It's some of the you know lower income tenants. There's a huge gap between who can afford. Space rent and who can afford a one bedroom apartment? And I have uh, great property managers and I have great tenants that are long term tenants that that probably won't won't move.
1: So you, you you scratched on right there that one of the things that I think is is super um, important is when you started out, you know, you're buying for cash flow. But in, and at least I know of you is the guy that has creative financing. You know that you put together these seller finance deals, or um, when everybody else was out exiting, you were going in. So why don't you, you know, maybe talk? You know, was that intentional or was that just a uh, a necessary evil? Like you didn't have the money, so you had to figure out some way to kind of build, start building this this real estate empire.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't want to take the whole call and the whole story because it it's, it goes back. But yeah, the the short of it is, you know, I, I read Rich Ed Poor in two thousand two, and I'm like, I'm going to start buying real estate. Shortly after that, uh, I get deployed to Iraq, spend a year in Kuwait and Iraq. I had I had previously joined the Army National Guard in high school, so I was doing the one week in a month stuff. Um, then I got called up a few, you know, a few years later, and. And I was gone. So that's where I really started telling all my friends, like, I'm going to come back and buy a house. I'm going to start buying a bunch of property. And I was living in my friend's attic for $100 a month prior to that. So that's why, you know, my friends I was deployed with were like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? You never went to college. You're living in an attic like Quasimodo. Like, how are you going to come back and, you know, do this? And I was like, I have no idea, but I read this book. And it says that you can build wealth through real estate. So that's what I'm going to do. So my first couple properties, you know, during the subprime 2005, And and really, the only bank loans I've ever got on purchases have been my first three properties. And so I've never actually traditionally financed a property uh, up to date other than these first three. And those first three, I don't even know if you consider traditional. It was subprime, banks were giving money to anybody. I was one of those guys that they gave a loan to even though I had no money and no job. And uh, so I was 100% financed on those first three properties and I, and I thought this is easy. I bought one in 05, bought one in 06, bought one in 07. And my initial goal was, I'm just going to go back to the bank once a year and buy a house. And in 20 years, I'll have 20 houses. And I'm doing pretty damn good at, with 20 houses in 20 years. You know, Here comes 2008. And you know, I go back to the bank and they say, hey, sorry, um, you actually don't qualify for a loan anymore. You, you actually need a down payment. You need income. Uh, you know, You have none of that. And I thought, what am I going to do? went and took a bunch of odd and end jobs. And, you know, eventually, um, I was like, this isn't going to work. I I landed a minimum wage job in a high school special education class. And a couple months in, I was like, this is not my dream. This is not what I want to be doing. Either either I get serious about investing in real estate, or I end up just going down the path of a low paying job. So yeah, I spent the next year on, on Craigslist every night just looking for seller finance deals, owner finance, I was typing in keywords like owner financing, seller financing, owner terms, Uh, And just just trying to find deals. I analyzed a lot of deals. I had a lot of conversations. And then really to answer your question is, yeah, I was really fortunate that I had no money. I had to get creative. I I had to find sellers that didn't care about a large down payment. And as I would talk to a lot of these potential sellers on Craigslist, I found that sellers, it was either the price, the interest rate, the down payment. It was some aspect of the deal that they were interested in, but not all sellers needed a large down payment and, and for different reasons. And so because that was the one thing that I was really missing was a was any kind of large down payment, uh, you know, I had to find sellers that were okay with other aspects of the deal. And then that's how I really built up my portfolio was buying properties from uh, these, these older sellers who were burned out. They had been, you know, landlording and managing and doing all the things that most people don't like to do when investing in real estate and my only criteria again was hey cash flow positive i looked at it as if this is cash flow positive from day 1 i'm hedging my risk what's the worst case scenario that could happen is i would have to give give the property back which which never did happen and so that's that's how i built it up and and even though there's been a lot of appreciation and there's uh been a lot of equity grown in some of those initial properties and even uh, all my properties throughout the years, I just never relied on that. I never bought a property needing to sell it or needing to have an exit. I've, everything I buy is the intention to hold forever. Even though I don't always hold forever, that's, that's how I go into a deal. Do I want the deal today? And does it pencil and make sense today?
1: So that's uh, that. the whole adage. I, I say this often is just buy cash flowing real estate and hold forever. You know, I was like, it, it's it's actually not that complex uh as as far as when you think of it but it's like people layer on so many other complexities to that you know and obviously when you syndicate or when you're using um you know a fund or something that you're using other people's money not always you know sometimes you can find aligned benefits but they want like an exit like hey when am i getting my money back out of this um so have you sold real estate and some of those initial properties, or like what what is the disposition of your holdings look like?
0: Yeah. so I have sold properties. I haven't sold I haven't sold a lot of properties. Um, uh, just as a good example, like in in 2020 I sold a couple of those initial single family homes. and and what was neat about that is a lot there had been some equity, right? I bought these homes for no money down. Uh, each each property had about two hundred thousand in equity. Uh, by the time I sold them in 2020, and what I realized is it, yes, the appreciation was there, but it was the cash flow that allowed me to hold them until 2020 to say, okay, I have here's the cash flow. This is kicking off, but I also have all this equity tied up. What's my return on equity? Can I sell and put this in, put the equity into something else that's gonna give me a higher return? And to me, the answer was yes. So I didn't buy those with the intention to sell, and the cash flow allowed me to hold them. In, in order to make that uh, make that decision, and and that's with a lot of my properties. You know, I look at I look at my portfolio and say, you know, even though I don't sell a lot, is the equity is the equity you know a stronger position? Would it make sense to sell this and reposition those, and reposition that money? And sometimes yes, and, and sometimes no. So I've only sold you know a handful a handful of properties.
1: And and I mean, we were at uh, in Sedona. We were talking about teams you know, as far as like managing your team or growing your organization or scaling it. And uh, I remember you sitting there and you'd be like, I don't really have a team, it's it's me. <laughs> I was like, and, you know, so that's one of the other kind of um, maybe limiting beliefs that people often have is they think that, oh, if I'm gonna go buy tens of millions of dollars worth of real estate, I need to have a really big team or be, you know, um, have awesome systems. So I, I'd like to, you know, hear a little bit more about like, how does a guy, you know, uh, in Oregon buy up all this real estate without having a team? How have you structured that? What are the things that you've put in place?
0: Yeah. I, I love that. You said uh, limiting belief and, you know, not having the team. So I was, I was just at the limitless event and I was on a passive real estate investing panel and the conversation kept going to syndication. And so I finally had to kind of like kind of like interrupt the group on there because that's all that was getting talked about. And I kind of said, hey, hey, there's other ways to, you know, not that any real estate is actually fully passive, right? But there's other ways to set up your life or your real estate portfolio and it be fairly passive. And so for me, I rely heavily on third-party property management. I've never had a W2 employee up until about a month and a half ago. I have one employee and that's very specific to the campground RV park that I, that I bought like two months ago. Um, outside of that, I rely heavily, like it's not my team, but I have great property managers who have really good systems and really good accounting. And the communication between me and the property managers is what's a, what allows it to be you know, fairly passive for me. I'm looking at high level stuff. I love acquisitions. I love meeting people. I love having conversations. I don't love property management. I don't love you know the dirty details of uh, paperwork. And so to me, third-party property management makes it easy, makes it clean. and allows me to focus on what I'm good at, what I, what I enjoy doing. Now,
1: that's awesome. The, the acquisitions. And, and one of the key things... You've mentioned it before, and obviously we haven't got into it on this call is, and you, you, you tapped on it a little bit on when you were responding to those Craigslist ads and you were looking for creative ways of financing or seller financing. Maybe if you can kind of illustrate a little bit more, what is it that you're finding is typical, um, or maybe if it's not typical, maybe what is you finding is that when you get a deal that's seller financed, is there any commonalities? Uh, of those sellers that are willing to carry back, um, or or maybe even use a, an illustration, I believe there was one deal. It wasn't about the price; it was more about like something else uh, related to the seller. If you can kind of dive into that, I'd appreciate. Yeah, that.
0: yeah, I can I can share that. So I think I think the avatar for uh, a seller that wants to carry financing, not always, but usually it's been men and women in their sixties and seventies. They typically have owned the asset. Uh, you know, 25, 30 years. In in most cases, but not all, they own the property free and clear. They are investors themselves. It's it's not their primary residence. I've never bought I've never bought someone's primary residence. So these are older investors, and they're great people, and they have a level, some level of sophistication, and they've built some level of wealth. And in most cases, they're just tired. They're burnt out from being landlord and property manager and dealing with tenants. And you know, the, early on, the first few deals I did. The terms were similar in the sense of th- I was doing interest-only type payments, which allowed me to cash a little bit more. The interest rate was slightly above market, and there'd be a balloon typically in about five years. And so I thought that was typical. And I also thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I need to go educate all these different sellers on why they should carry financing. And then I realized like, I didn't educate anyone. These sellers actually knew at the time way more about seller financing than I did. I just knew that they wanted to carry financing. And then I just asked the basic question of, hey, what kind of terms would work for you? And then I would listen. And so what I realized, instead of giving myself the job of having to educate sellers, if I could get in front of enough sellers that already knew what seller financing was and just ask the simple question of, hey, what kind of terms would you be interested in? And that's still what I do today. If I know a seller wants to carry financing, I say just that. Oh, great. What kind of terms would you be interested in? And I just listen and I hear, is it the price? Is it the down payment? Is it the interest rate? And a lot of times, buyers aren't listening to the seller, or there's an agent involved that doesn't allow you uh, to even have the conversation with with the seller. And and this may be the example you were talking about, but there was an expired listing. It was a commercial building with seven multifamily properties. And they were advertising it as... And and tell me if this isn't the one, but they were advertising it as a development project and developable land. And, And it very much is. I may develop that land at some point the listing expired. And I went to talk with the owner and I knew that he was getting cash offers. I knew he was getting cash offers and you're asking. And I said, Hey, what's going on? How come um, this hasn't sold? And he said, you know, I'm, this guy's a retired judge. And he said, I really don't want to be cashed out. I've been doing, I'm in my, I'm in my mid seventies. I have no family to pass this on to, but what I want is I want income for the next 15 years. And I don't want to be cashed out. Because if I get cashed out, what do I do with this money? I don't want to put in the stock market. I don't want to, I don't even want to actively invest and do a 1031 exchange. uh, I don't want to sit on cash. He said, I have no family passes on to, I want income for the next 15 years. And if I were to pass away in that 15 years, I want those payments to go to this nonprofit organization that's really near and dear to my heart. Um, Or if I were to pass away and you were to cash it out, I would want that to go to them. And that's how we set it up. And it was just an example of where his own, uh, his own listing broker didn't even know or ask him what the needs of his was. His need was not. He didn't want to be cashed out selling his developable land. He wanted income, and no one even asked him. And so, once I heard what his needs were, I was able to create a structure that gave him just that uh, income for the next fifteen years. That he was flexible on price. He was flexible on interest rate. Uh, it was a low down payment, you know. But it, it gave him exactly what he wanted, and I was still able to make the deal work for me just because I asked what it was that he was looking for. And then I found a way to give him what he wanted and make the deal work for me. And that's and that's really the magic of seller financing is it's as creative as the buyer and seller can be. And you can come up with so many different possibilities of terms, uh, different than what a bank would would tell you. A bank is usually, hey, this is the terms, you take it or leave it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, what, what's the limitations to, you know, human, you know, creativity? Um, you know, and obviously, like you said, these are oftentimes people that are sophisticated. They they probably know more than you do. And they know all the nuances about the, the, the property and how it's structured and how they financed it. So um, I think that's that's very, very um, critical. One of the things I, I'd like to go back is, you know. To how, how you got started, you, you know, and obviously, uh, I had a, a similar experience. I, I did the delayed entry program into the army. I went to boot camp during my junior year and, uh, then went back in my senior year. And it, it, so, uh, I share that, you know, experience with you. Um, I think I was a little bit earlier in, uh, red, rich dad, poor dad, probably around the same time as I was kind of just get, getting out. Um, and it took me a few years. I think it was, I think maybe I bought my first property in 2002 or 2003. And it was just, you know, again, I, it took me a while to to even buy anything. I just didn't know how to do it. Um, I went with, you know, having down payment and traditional, I didn't, uh, figure out that, you know, how to hack things. So I'd like to take it back. Like what does what was growing up like for Gabe? Did you grow up in, you know, Oregon? Um, I know you're there now.
0: Yeah, I, I did grow up in Oregon. You know, I wasn't I wasn't I I didn't grow up around business. I didn't grow up around money. I didn't grow up around real estate. But I not you know, I I had everything I needed growing up, but not, you know, I was lower middle class, and I always I wanted more, and so you know, I was a kid that had a paper out from 12 to 16, and. I was a kid that sold candy bars out of my locker in middle school and condoms out of my locker in high school and just, just always trying to figure out a way to hustle. I was attracted to business and I just didn't know what that was going to look like. In my mind, it, you know, I always pictured a, a nice suit in a tall building and, and I realized that's not actually what I enjoy. I'd rather be in t-shirts and jeans or sweatpants, right? And so um, I guess my idea of what business looked like or what uh, financial freedom actually looked like had changed throughout the years. And so that's why I think, you know, that the, the book Rich said Poor Dad was so impactful for me. And of course, of course, many others is just a new way of thinking, you know, I, I stayed in school for the, the social aspect. And because I was a high school wrestler, and that's, that's what I think really kept me in school. I'm not sure I would have stayed in school without those without those things. And so, yeah, for a couple of years, a little bit lost, like uh, a lot of young people just trying to figure out what it is that they want to do. And, and that book really, really changed the direction of my life. It gave me an idea, um, to how I wanted to pursue, you know, going into, uh, the future with my life.
1: I think that's, it's, um, picking a direction. Oftentimes people come to me, you know, they know that I do commercial real estate and they say, Hey, I want to do a good deal, or I want to do a deal. And, uh, you know, they, or they ask me and it's like, I don't know if a deal's a good deal to them, And, and, you know, to your point of the rich dad, poor dad, you just picked a direction. You literally just said, I'm doing this. And you started going to that. And I think through the action of picking a direction, then you started putting like parameters towards like, oh, buying real estate. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to buy assets. And I started going in that direction. So that in itself helps to define What is a good deal for you? Because it's, you know, again, you are like, as long as it cash flows, because that's a principle of the book, cash flowing assets, how many cash flowing assets can you afford?
0: Yeah. And that just, and that just made sense to me in like the most simplest, in the most simplest form too. I mean, the other part of that was, you know, the idea of getting a job and working for someone else forever and retiring when I was too old to enjoy life didn't seem attractive it seemed what most people did and I I didn't want to do that Uh, you know I would meet many adults that worked their whole lives or who had been working their whole lives and it wasn't even that they were always unhappy it just wasn't what I wanted to do I didn't want to get up every morning and work for someone else making them wealthy especially not my entire life
1: Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into and is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and giveaway VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithan's.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. So your first few properties, you buy bank financing just as a rental properties, 05, 06, 07. Then, obviously, the banks, hey you actually need money and a job and like, oh man, you're gonna to have to actually qualify for this so you can't get financing so you start pivoting to seller financing. What does that early kind of creative seller financing look like? It's cash flow positive, but I mean, is this a hundred dollars a month? Is it ten thousand dollars a month? So let's like now let's you know you're, I mean shoot. Probably fifteen years, seventeen years into your career, what are the first like five years, uh, you know, first ten years of investing look like for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, even those first properties, even though they were one hundred percent financed, like the first house rented out two of the rooms, uh, one to my brother, one to a friend. Um, you know, now they call it house hacking. It just made financial sense then, and did that with you know the first first couple. So. Even, even then, I still didn't overbuy. You always hear the whole horror stories of people way overpaying for a property during, during the subprime. But those homes, as, as they move, would turn into rental properties and they were still cash for rental properties. So yeah, initially it was a couple hundred dollars a month. And then to the next house and a couple hundred dollars a month. Those, those first couple, the first seller finance deal that I did it was two duplexes side by side. I want to say, if I remember the cash flow, and that was maybe like thirteen hundred and fifty dollars a month, you know, between between the four units. And some of that was just the structure of how we set it up, you know, uh, with interest-only payments. Um, and and I really thought in my mind, you know, worst-case scenario, if at the end of this term, if I have to give the properties back, which I never did, but I wrote it up. They were just non-recourse notes, and so I thought, hey, I'm gonna cash flow the whole time that I own these, and if for some reason I'm unable to refi or uh, have to give these properties back, then at least I learned. At least I learned something. But rather than do that, I just I just kept buying from you know through 09 through '13, and just kind of built up from there. By twenty by 2014, uh, you know these properties had tenants that were paying more in rent. Uh, interest rates were low, prices were up, and that was the first time I did a refinance out of the seller financing. Uh, loans and into long-term fixed debt. And so I didn't pull any cash out then. It was just all uh, fixed rate mortgages on those properties. And what it really opened my eyes to is I ended up with the same type of loans that I would have gotten had I bought these properties traditionally, except for by 2014, I had those same kind of loans and I didn't have to bring that 25, 30% to the table of which I didn't have. And so back then it was when rates hit 4, you know, 4% for the first time. So even on the multifamily stuff, I was getting 4.125, 4.25% on 30-year fully amortized loans. And so I went from these seller finance loans to fixed-term debt. Uh, One of the women that was carrying financing for me, she got a lump sum of cash. She ended up lending that back to me as as, as a private money loan. So that relationship didn't end there. I had never borrowed private money. She had never lent private money. But I ended up in contract on a property down the street um, and she financed that for me. She kind of, jo- I, she kind of jokingly and said, what am I gonna do with all this money? And I said, you could, you could lend it back to me. And she had laughed, but a couple months later, um, she said, Hey, were you serious about that? And I said, absolutely. And we had six years of trust already, but six years of, you know, me making payments to her on time every month. And so she, she was happy to be a private money lender for me. And so that relationship didn't end just because I refinanced.
1: Yeah. I mean that the long tail of that, I think that's so critical that, you know, you're Building that relationship with these people, now they trust you that you said what you're you're gonna do, and I think that's probably a probably a pretty big fear uh, of someone on the other side. So thinking of someone carrying you know a note to some new buyer that's gonna take over is like, are they gonna maintain the property? Are they gonna actually make payments to me? You know, am I gonna have to go through foreclosure and try to take this you know property back in worse condition than it was before? Um, And then obviously presenting yourself and doing and honoring your word. I mean, there's a fairly simple, you know, uh, premise and and process. But I mean, sometimes it seems like the simple things are not being done in in today's day and age. Yeah, I think there's a lot of
0: people, you know, on the note, just trying to make a quick buck. And it's like, if you're in this for the long haul, I mean, just as a human, you got to do what you say you're going to do. You know, and it's it does come down to you know do you know like and trust them, and I think you know building that trust is important. I, I just sold some of these properties actually recently on seller financing terms to, to people I know like and trust, and you know the terms it's it's again it's a win win scenario. I've, a lot of equity's been built in those properties, but there's some of my older properties, a lot of deferred maintenance. And so I sold them to a couple that have the skill set to go in there, clean them up, uh, actualize, you know, uh, even higher rental rates, but it's not the best use of my money to go in there and do that. And so, you know, they offered me uh, terms that were favorable to me and them. And it's again, it's a, it's a win-win scenario. And I'm happy to do that because I know that I can trust them just, just like sellers uh, felt the same way for me back, back when I got started.
1: I was going to ask that. I was going to ask if you'd carried back paper on anything. Because I mean, really, that's kind of a passive way of investing as well is now you don't even have to, you know, deal with the property management, obviously, after you trust people. So how has that experience been for you so far as carrying back paper? Yeah, it's been newer. So it's kind of, it's
0: kind of interesting, because it got brought up in the passive uh, real estate panel uh, last week as well. Because, you know, these sellers who carry financing for me, I realized like they were on it created such a higher level of passivity for them, especially because they were so hands-on with dealing with the property. They went from, you know, working all the time on these properties and dealing with tenants to just getting a check in the mail. So I think, you know, carrying financing for someone is a very high level of uh, passive investing. And so is lending. So is lending money. And uh, I've done a little bit of that as well. And that's something I'm looking to do, do in the future. But it's, it's interesting because, and I bring this up all the time now is, I've talked a lot about seller financing, done a lot of podcasts and I've done a handful of live events. And it was, it was years before someone raised their hand and said, Hey, do you have any duplexes that you would uh, sell or finance me? And I remember the first time I was asked that and I'm, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't right now, but that's such a great question. I'm always talking about finding investors that that already and real estate that may carry financing. It took years before someone actually asked me if I would carry financing for them. So far, I like being on the other end of, uh, of that transaction. Absolutely,
1: that's great. You um, have so much of your life has been designed, and, and I, 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 you know, because I know you, that's been intentional. Um, obviously, relying on third parties the way you invest. So, like, what does? Is there a typical month? You know, it, what is you know a, a you know a typical day look like in your life? What is the you know, Shangri-La, the other side of things when you have this financial freedom that people are, you know, um, you know, looking towards or trying to achieve, what does that look like for you?
0: Yeah. I mean, it it varies. Right. And I think part of it is, you know, the importance of time freedom or making sure, you know, what it is that you want. I think what we do with our time, you know, can vary from who you are and what you want to do, but ultimately it comes down to, Having the choice and having the freedom to do as you please with your time, so yeah, that that can vary. You know, today I worked out and hung out with my wife for a little bit, and we're just we're just kind of chilling. Last week I went to a, a real estate event. You know, last year we did a couple month road trip with with the kids. We spent a month in Maui. Uh, went back there on the Maui mastermind trip uh, last March. Did you know we were in uh, in Necker Island for a bit with Richard Branson? So it's it's you know, been able to do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but more than anything, it's the financial freedom is a lot of the time freedom to be able to, to do those things. And so I think, you know, for others, it's less about what you do with that time and more about that. You have the choice to, with what you do with that time, you actually have the choice to, you know, choose what you do with your life.
1: Yeah. I mean, what, what a powerful thing, you know, having choice, which so many people, and then obviously if you'd gone down the path of working a job, you, know, you probably don't have, well, I mean, I have employees. Uh, I've been an employee, you know, you don't really have choice. It's, you know, do this and they will give you this paycheck in a couple of weeks. And you get to keep doing that over and over. I, I, you, you mentioned this, and this was something that I wanted to bring up, going to Necker Island, spending some time with Richard Branson. What you know, let's maybe start with high level and then get into some more granular details as far as what did that do for you? And what did you uh, experience, you know, spending time with someone that is quasi the patron saint of entrepreneurs?
0: Sure. I, I think, I think the more and more I get in the rooms with people that are playing at a higher level than I am, it just forces me to think bigger and want to play life bigger. You know, it's, I I go to a lot of different events, you know, we're in a mastermind, we're in Go Abundance together. And, and, you know, we went to Sedona together uh, for that mastermind. And sometimes it's very actionable, um, like do this or do that. Don't, you know, I got to implement this in my life or in my business. But for me, honestly, sometimes it's just getting around people that are playing life bigger. It kind of forces me to, to think bigger and want to play bigger. It's hard to really calculate the return on what that, what that might be. Uh, it's, it's more just being in that environment forces me to, to think bigger.
1: So when you say that, Richard Branson, what was that like? It, you know, and, and obviously I watched you, you know, Aaron and, and Daniel uh, doing your interview there with the, the sun setting over the Caribbean and sharing a little bit of your, your story and your background. So spending time with Richard Branson and these people that are playing, huge what were some of those revelations? What were some of those things that you, you came back and maybe if it wasn't action items, but you were just like, whoa. Yeah, I think,
0: I think one of the biggest things with, with Branch in particular, like at least, you know, one, like one of the things I admire is, yes, he's an amazing entrepreneur, um, but he also knows, have, he's, he knows how to have fun. He's in shape. I mean, we did a, a bike ride with him. At least some of us is like 11 miles, almost all uphill. He's 71 years old. And he's, he, not only is he hanging, he's like leading the way got kite boards. he's, he's kind to the people around him. And so, I mean, that was inspiring to see anything that I've ever seen of him online. It's, he's that's how he is in, in real life. And so, um, you know, that was, that was really neat to see, uh, you know, yeah, Daniel and Aaron got to interview him. It hasn't been released. I don't know if it, it will get released. but one thing that really stood out to me is throughout his career, you know, they kept talking about how it was kind of played on that knife's edge a lot where he was willing to go all in. He was willing to risk Uh, multiple things that he built to go all in on what he believed in. And so he, he, he would, you know, as simple as, okay, here's all the revenue that's being kicked off from this business. I'm willing to take that and go all in on this next endeavor. And he would say, you know, I didn't have a board of directors to tell me no, they probably would have said no. But if he believed in something strong enough, he would go all in 100% and he'd be willing to risk one thing to go to the next thing that he believed in. And I think... That's why he's had a lot of success because he believed in something so strong that he's willing to go all in on it. Uh,
1: yeah, that's. I mean, I, I guess that's you know, you know, when you're playing such a bigger level, and I, and obviously I don't know Elon Musk, but you know, you see and hear and read some of these stories, the same thing where he's like, I exited. You know, PayPal, and I had to borrow money for rent because I invested every last nickel and dollar into these next ventures and everything else. And I, you know, so going all in, you know, and I hear that more and more in stories. Do you have any of that in your own life, or have you also started to take a, you know, a thought process of, hey, I built it here, I'm trying to protect. My basis, and I'm willing to risk this. Or are you someone coming back from from Richard Branson that you're like, man, I got 40 million in real estate. I'm putting it all in to make it go to 200 million.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably one of the best questions I've been asked in a while, or at least it feels like it's one of the best questions because it's something that that challenges my mind. Right when I when I got started, I I, I'm very much an all in kind of person. Like I, I go all in. Um, I think, you know, early on I had nothing to, nothing to lose. I had no money to lose. And so it was like easy to go all in. And so in my mind, you know, I come back from Necker going, Oh shit, maybe I do need to go all in again. Maybe I need to step it up and go all in because when you have nothing to lose, you have nothing to lose. Now I've built a significant level of wealth where it's like, okay, I don't want to lose what I built, but I also want to go, go next level. What does that look like? And, you know what moves should I be making? Is is there is there some fear that I'm like standing behind because I've built up a certain level of wealth that I don't want to lose, or uh, is it is it actually more risky to think that way and not just go all in on the on the next thing? I mean, I'm not sure that's something that challenges like currently challenges my mind, and so I don't know what that next evolution is going to look like. I love the game. I, I mean, I love life and I, I enjoy the, the game of real estate. I enjoy building wealth and I'm going to keep doing it as long as I enjoy doing it. And so, yeah, I want to, I want to step it up and, and go next level. What that may look like. I'm not fully sure, but I'm not going to stop playing.
1: Yeah. I think obviously defining what that next level is that you're trying to achieve. And I guess if there's something that you believe in that wholeheartedly, um, knowing you i i think you would um likely do that but um be have the ability to push all those chips in and i question this even myself you know uh obviously you know married have kids you know it's it's like a different thing you know when i was single and you know, pushing all the chips on the table and you'd be like, all right. And, and I did, I happened to experience, you know, the subprime meltdown and the collapse and losing, you know, millionaire to a negative net worth, you know, to, you know, uh, hemorrhaging money. And that became a foundational kind of rock that I was like, Hey, I don't want to go do and experience that again. And so I see that also in the way that I invest when I acquire new assets Um, is there a nirvana of, can you get Richard Branson like, you know, next levels, but also not risking everything that you have built so far?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think like I look at investing pretty simply. I mean, for me, it's, I just don't think I'm a complicated guy. Like it's for me, a lot of times it's basic math and intuition and whether that's, Hiring a property manager, whether that's on a deal, I mean, yeah, I'm looking at the numbers, but at the end of the day, it's you know, it's usually basic math and intuition. Um, you know, I, I closed on this campground, this RV park. I mean, I, I've been buying, I've been buying uh, mobile home parks, and then this RV park came across my table, and the numbers look great. I closed on this thing before I had someone to run it, um, you know, and but I knew I had to trust that. Uh, my gut was like, yeah, I still need to close. I had asked the the sellers to stay on uh, managing it for a little bit. And then I got really fortunate that I found someone that is running this park and doing such an amazing job. And so you know, I was having this conversation last week, like, what if I let fear not allow me to buy that property? Or what if just because I didn't have someone lined up, I didn't close the the property? The math was good. And my, my gut was close the deal anyway, and I'll find someone. And I got really fortunate with you know, who I have running the park. And so uh, for me, that's that's how I really plan on going to things in the future is, yeah, I'm gonna protect what I have. The, I think the, the real estate protects itself because they're cash flowing assets. Um, and at the same time, I, you know, I'm looking at bigger deals, but the fundamentals of investing don't really change. And, you know, the market's shifting. I think um, we're seeing that across all sectors. Uh, the morning I'm just gonna keep my eyes open and pay attention. And at the end of the day, just trust my, trust my instinct.
1: So you mentioned that and that's something I'd like to to unpack a little bit intuition or your gut instinct. Um, Have you seen that change in you over time? You know, and and, and I ask this and I'll try to, uh, you know, give a little bit more context to that. You know, your initial deals maybe look a little bit different or smaller dollar amounts you've then read a lot and and, you know you and i've talked about books and spent a lot of time around masterminds and other things like that so has your intuition or gut been refined or grown or changed in in some quality or quantitative way during your investing experience or has that kind of been true all the way through and then and so that the reason i'm asking it this way is if there's action items that has allowed your evolution of your gut instinct, that it can help give that out to other people as maybe, hey, this is the way that you've taken it and your experiences have refined that process.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I wish I had a, I wish I had a better answer for you and, and, and for your listeners. I, I'm not totally sure. I mean, I definitely think being in it, you know, and having that experience and that taking action. Is you're gonna naturally build some of that. You're gonna build that confidence, right? The the first house gave me the confidence to do the second one. The the very first seller finance deal, you know, I mean that first seller finance deal. I remember me going, what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I, what am I missing? I I had looked and analyzed properties for a year, and it was you know when I once I pulled the trigger and bought that first seller financing deal, the other ones seemed easy. Same with the first mobile home park deal. Once I bought that, it gave me the confidence. And then of course the experience to do the next one, the next one, the next one. So I think there, it's kind of two part, like you got to, you got to take that action. Like you have to believe it in your mind for sure. um, What you want, and then you have to take action. And some of that you're just going to, you're going to get the experience by, by doing. And so I don't know if I can say I've refined that to some, you know, magical or some science, you know, science, but uh, you know, definitely time and experience I feel like plays a role in that.
1: Do you feel your, your, uh, ability or your analysis on deals have gotten better over the years?
0: Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It's not, that's just, I think just time, time in the saddle for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause uh, to, to me is I, I say this often, you and I talked about this, but action, action creates, and even we talked about it earlier in the podcast about you just deciding a direction. Was that the right direction, wrong direction? It doesn't really matter it's the fact that you're just taking action and moving and you can course correct. And sometimes you may be going down and be like, I don't like this. I'm going the other direction. But at least because you've made some action off of the, uh, you know, analyzing the, the analysis paralysis, the, the trying to hedge and do both things at once, just creating and taking action. And that's one of the things that I really love about you is you are an action oriented guy like you just do. And. I remember talking or, you know, and you're like, Hey, I want to start harvesting some of this equity and placing it into other deals. And how do I do that? And then all of a sudden, man, it's like you took off. And, and did you double your net worth in the last couple of years?
0: Yeah. I mean, I close to triple, triple my net worth in the last, in the last few years, you know, and I think again, some of that's just time in, in, in the game. Some of that's just making educated decisions and investments. And as far as, yeah, pulling, you know, harvesting some of that equity. Yeah. I mean, I saw the market, I don't have a crystal ball, but I saw that, hey, prices are way up and interest rates are way low. And so, you know, just simple moves, like just, just paying attention to what's going on and, and making those uh, intuitive decisions. So yeah, my first four mobile home parks, I pulled as much cash as I possibly could out of those at the lowest, in, when, when rates were at an all time low, I don't want to sit on cap, you know, cash. I, I have a, I'm fairly liquid compared to where I normally sit, but now I have very low, you know, debt to, to go deploy. Like I'm paying very low interest on this money that I can go deploy and put into multiple, multiple deals. And to me, that just, that just makes sense. And so it's, it's paying attention and knowing, knowing when to do that. And it was simple as hey, prices are high, interest rates are low. I have strong equity positions. I'm going to pull as much cash out as possible I've always looked at real estate as the asset, but I've also realized debt is an asset and real estate is the most leverageable asset on the planet. And if I can take leverage debt at low interest and go put that into something else with a higher return, all I'm doing is arbitrage in that, that money and that's easy to multiply. Again, I didn't just go back to basic math and again, intuition.
1: That's, that's funny. You mentioned that because it was actually one of the first things I ever talked to my wife about was when you're borrowing money at under inflationary rates, you're basically earning the money that you're uh, above what you're borrowing. And, you know, cause I was talking to her, like you borrow 3% real, you know, inflation is higher than the CPI number. Uh, and again, people that are listening to this CPI consumer price index is what the government is saying inflation is, but the reality is it's sometimes twice or three times that the fact that debt is an asset That is one of those things that blows people's mind. And it took me a while.
0: It took me a while to to understand that as well. Because I always thought, okay, real estate's the asset, real estate's the asset. But yeah, I'm borrowing at, you know, half the cost of or half the percent of CPI, probably closer to, you know, three times the actual inflation rate. And so I'd rather, even if I'm sitting on that for the short term, I'd rather have it to deploy into cash producing assets later in the near future.
1: I know you and I, we could probably talk forever on these topics. I do have a few, you know, kind of uh, questions I'd like to ask, you know, some uh, key, you know, books. But before I get into that is like, what can the audience, you know, bring to you? Is there deals? Is there a particular deal or something like that, that you know, uh, a relationship uh, that you're looking for that we can put out into the world? And then we'll get into some of these, these final questions of the show.
0: Yeah. I don't know specifically, uh, you know, other than, I mean, anyone listening, they come across a mobile home park deal. I really want to get into other markets. Most of my properties are in Oregon, you know, and so I'm open to partnering with people that know their market. I I feel very comfortable in the mobile home park space. I feel very comfortable with uh, sellers that want to carry financing. And so I've had a lot of people recently, uh, you know, come my way who have property, either mobile mobile home parks, uh, or sellers that want to carry financing. And I would love to partner with someone that knows their market and maybe doesn't really fully uh, understand seller financing yet or the mobile home park space yet.
1: That's awesome. You mentioned rich dad, poor dad. What other books have been, um, Paramount, or maybe you've give, given them, gifted them more than others uh, that have been, you know, foundational, experiential. You know, it can be one, it can be none, it can be fifty. Uh, you know, I, I think books are a huge, huge hack for for people looking to gain knowledge.
0: Yeah, I, initially it was, of course, rich dad, poor dad. And that led me down the road. Uh, I mean, that was the first book I actually ever read, word for word, cover to cover, in my life, when I was nineteen. And so then, you know, I kind of naturally read some of the other books in the Rich Dad series. Uh, Ken McElroy's ABCs to Real Estate Investing, Advanced Guide to Real Estate Investing. You know, crazy enough, I was just at uh, Ken's event. I, I was able to speak, uh, you know, at the same event as Robert Kiyosaki and Ken uh, this last week, which kind of brings it brings it full circle. That was really neat. Uh, Tax Free Wealth, which was in that that series, Asset Protection. So a lot of the books initially in in that series. But then that led to me, uh, also led me to the richest man of Babylon, um, think and grow rich, of course, the classic, how to win friends and influence people. Those those are probably some of the most influential books, uh, in my life, I think.
1: And then any books of late that you have found to be, uh, incredibly valuable or, or, you know, opened your mind up to new possibilities. Oh gosh. I don't know. I'm,
0: I, I kind of go through phases where I'm listening to audiobooks or podcasts, um, Yeah, I don't know. Right, right now, I've I've been listening to a lot of just uh, a couple podcasts,
1: and I'd love to hear that. What, what are some of the podcasts that are have your attention these days?
0: Other than yours, other than this one, other than this one, uh, I'm really enjoying the All In, the All In podcast. Uh, I've also really been liking Brian Lubin's uh, Action Academy podcast as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I've been on uh, Brian's uh, podcast. You guys should check him out. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, I was a guest there. Actually, Gabe, you sent me a nice text uh, in response to to my episode there. I had a, a few other people as well. Yeah, you had uh, a great you had a great
0: episode, and uh, and I've been on there as well. And I, I Brian gets some great great guests, and so it's been a good uh, it's been good to see his growth and see who he gets on there.
1: Yeah, I, and I think one of the things is he's a kind of high energy person in general, and so when he's bringing that energy, it also uh, resonates. At least it did for me as a guest um, and obviously all in a fantastic podcast. I mean, are each of those guys billionaires or close to billionaires?
0: I, I think they all, yeah, not, I think they might all be.
1: Yeah. Uh, so a bunch of billionaires talking about investing. It, it is, um, it took me, I don't know, probably five, six people had to reference that podcast before I actually started listening to episodes and it is quite fantastic. Um, so it is, you know, you're listening to this podcast you probably already heard of of these other ones um i'd like to ask what final question of what is it that you're most grateful for
0: what am i most grateful for gosh just life i mean life in general i mean my my wife and kids for sure but i think life i you know earlier this year I, i think naturally i i have a lot of gratitude and i i start my day with gratitude it started off as just wanting to list three things in my mind of things I'm thankful for. And a lot of mornings it's just rolling in my head, like 20, 30 things uh, that I'm grateful for. But I think that is the single largest, biggest contributor to my happiness is then gratitude. And so I just try to find the good in things. And there's a lot, there's a lot to be grateful
1: for. Well, everybody, again, this is another passive wealth principles podcast show. Fantastic opportunity to spend some time with gabriel uh, thank you so much for your time away from your family you know uh, acquiring more mobile home parks with creative financing and uh, again that is a, a uh, inspiring to me every time i'm around you and also one little last little tidbit that i'm going to give people the gabriel unofficially has the guinness book world records for push-ups and diamond push-ups diamond push-ups yeah how many is that? Uh,
0: I think the most, Let's see. The most I've done in a minute is 96.
1: 96 Nine diamond push-ups in a minute. We're, we're working on Guinness Book, officially making that a world record. And uh, maybe we'll get him a big belt or something like that when they officially honor that. But uh, Gabriel, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at catch knives or me personally at jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.